Hi, and welcome to the Emergence Playbook. I'm Jake Saper. And today we are very lucky to have Chitra Nayak, who is the COO of Comfy, which is an employee productivity or workplace productivity app uh, that I am in no way biased in favor of. Uh, it's a wonderful company. Um, so let me tell you a bit about Chitra before we dive in. So Chitra um, has a really impressive resume. Chitra um, has been a management consultant at the Boston Consulting Group for many years. She also has an MBA from Harvard Business School. And after that moved um, into um, kind of consumer uh, technology and fintech, she worked at Charles Schwab and she worked at AAA um, and then moved into Salesforce and spent, I think, seven or eight years at Salesforce, ultimately um, ending her tenure there as the COO of Platform. Um, and then she kind of dove into the startup world, uh, working at Funding Circle in the fintech space. And now she's the COO uh, of Comfy. So super lucky to have her today. She's got perspective from strategy consulting. She's got perspective from large tech companies and now obviously the startup realm. So thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me too. So what I wanted to start by doing um, is asking you a question that I've gotten from a number of my own peers. I started actually in consulting myself. Um, and have moved into a new version of tech, although not quite tech proper <laughs> the way you have. Um, but a lot of people have asked me the question of how do you move from being kind of a generalist or a strategist um, into, into tech, um, either in kind of big tech as you did or, or even obviously into the to, to startups where you are now. So curious as to kind of how you thought about making that decision and then how you ended up executing on it. Yeah, you know, it's funny because a lot of people who don't have MBAs or haven't gone to strategy consulting firms, lust after this idea that, that strategy is the place to be. But most people who actually have done strategy are usually or very often looking to do something else that is more hands-on. Um, and I think for me, that was very much a key driver. Uh, after years at the Boston Consulting Group, I wanted to go out there and uh, help what I call the concept to execution spectrum, where you come up with a great idea, that's really important, but 80% of it is in actually making it happen. Mm -hmm. And so when I left BCG to go to Charles Schwab, it was when they were absolutely on roller coaster growth mode. Um, and uh, a lot of what I did really comes down to that execution sort of element of come up with a great idea. Let's launch Schwab private client. Let's move to advice. How do you actually make that happen? So um, a, a lot of my early strategy was in that spectrum of actually making things happen in the go-to-market space. Mm -hmm. A lot of it really was around connecting the different, really connecting the dots between the different elements of marketing and sales and strategy and pricing to bring that together. And so that's for me, I think, where I started to make this transition and I was very fortunate to be able to do it. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. And when you think about kind of positioning yourself for from kind of a, a general strategy role into something more tech or execution oriented, how did you do that? And do you have any advice for people that might be graduating from business school today or strategy consulting firms today that want to kind of follow the career path you've taken? Yeah, it's interesting because at Schwab, we used to hire from the same pool for two very different roles. We hired into the strategy group at Schwab, and then we hired into my group, which was a much more an operationals go-to-market role. Uh, and the difference was really what you wanted to do most, mm -hmm. right? And so if really your intent is to get out there and become an operator and, and to execute, it is looking for projects and initiatives where you can take that wonderful idea and actually then work across the organization to make it happen. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and that's really, I think, how you can build the credibility in the organization you're at to show that when there's an opportunity, you can put up your hand and say, I can run marketing, I can run sales, I can do that. Mm -hmm. um, and so to me, that's the advice I would give people is, is look for that opportunity. Yeah, makes sense, makes sense. So you moved uh, from Charles Schwab to AAA and then from AAA to Salesforce. Um, how big was Salesforce when you joined? Salesforce is right about a thousand people. A thousand people. And how many people do you know are there today? Um, 25,000. 25, people. Yes. All right. Great. So been obviously a, yes. a great ride. Um, so um, as far as I understand, part of your role at Salesforce was kind of bringing together different parts of the go-to-market strategy. So you had sales, you had marketing and all the various parts of marketing, product marketing and brand marketing, all sorts of other things, um, which often operate as silos. And you know, in our startups, they generally, you know, you have someone who runs each of those functions, um, but as the company grows, there can be kind of a breakdown of communication between those silos, and obviously it all has to work as a machine. And I know you spent a bunch of time at Salesforce trying to figure out how to make that, that work. So I'm curious as to kind of what you found when you started and then kind of what the story looked like uh, over time as you tried to kind of bring uh, sort of cohesity across those functions. Mm -hmm. So I think the most relevant um, sort of example is my last uh, role at Salesforce, which was COO platform. Platform for Salesforce was really the, the really early stage third leg of the stool. We had Sales Cloud, we had Service Cloud. Platform was just beginning to make its presence known in the world. And the initial foray and the marketing was all around you can do, anyone can do anything. You can do anything on the platform. Uh, we found that not surprisingly, this actually got almost no traction. We were out there prospecting really widely um, to just uh, any company on the street. We came in and actually connected the dots between uh, everything from the sales strategy um, to the pricing to the specialist sales team. Um, and we figured out what we actually needed to do to go to market. Uh, which was around how do we target the right customer. Um, you don't want to go after just anyone. Go after people who are already customers where you have credibility with Sales Cloud, and then you can cross-sell them on customizing for platform. So find the right segment, get your specialist team focused on that segment, work with, work with product marketing to say what are the top four use cases, start to build customer stories behind it, and then get that feedback loop going between your sales team and your pricing team to say, the first pricing incarnation we had actually didn't work because people couldn't understand how much they needed to buy to build a product. Mm -hmm. And so we actually worked very iteratively to say, how do we price this in a way people can understand it? Mm -hmm. So as you can see, this connected the dots between many different groups and any individual group couldn't have pulled it off. Mm -hmm. But by connecting them, we actually got a cohesive um, sort of scalable approach to the mm -hmm. market. What any, any sort of mistakes you made to that process when you were thinking about like ways in which you uh, sort of tempted to bring those functions together, but, but struggled to do so? You know, I think the, the main, you know, some of the mistakes were in the early pricing, in the early positioning. Um, and so one thing I will say is that in any of these cases, being open to iterate, the rapid test and learn aspect of it is really important because you will make mistakes, especially with a new product or a new segment. Uh, and so being really alert to that feedback loop coming back from your customer and then figuring out how to fold it in so that you can try something new and staying always um, on top of that, I think is really important because you will make mistakes. Yeah. You just have to be sure you're watching for them. And, and, and again, especially listening to the customer, I think is the most important. It sounds acneed, uh, but it, it's really critical. Yeah, makes sense. 
any any things you did organizationally to make sure that sales and marketing like talk to each other and themselves iterated like what 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 can, what can you do as someone who kind of oversees both of those functions to make sure that they're talking mm-hmm. um, you know it's funny it was true at salesforce and platform it's true of the startups i've been in since that um really creating a strong communication flow that is regular um, and is fairly structured in that, you know, do you meet every week? Do you talk about the business? Do you air the issues you're hearing? And that that whole leadership team for that product or that startup are in the room at the same time. Um, I now have at the startups I've been in a regular hour to hour and a half go to market meeting every week because it creates that forum to say, this is where you connect the dots. This is where, you know, somebody in sales goes, Hey, you know, we were out there pitching this customer to 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 win an expansion deal, uh, but the content didn't look great. And that's when you have the person who runs product marketing and corporate marketing in the room to go, oh, we need to help with a more standardized process to help you get there. So I think creating the forum for the conversation and the sharing in a in a very data driven sort of way, um, I, I think is is what is key here. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned uh, that at Comfy where you are now you actually have made some seating chart changes to affect this. Can you talk a bit about that? We have. Um, We uh, had the opportunity to think hard about which teams needed to work with which other teams and where where was the friction. Um, And we've actually moved, for instance, product marketing to sit next to product Mm -hmm. because um, we decided that it's really important for them to have a continuous back and forth um, which will help, I think, the understanding on both sides. Um, similarly, marketing and sales sit next to each other. And so I think even in a very small, you know, relatively small company, the more you think consciously about ways to connect the dots, um, uh, I, I think you're going to be m- much better off. Yeah, makes sense. So a related question I've been thinking about a lot recently is pricing. Specifically, like, where should pricing sit within an organization? Who, because very few people have the title chief pricing officer or VP of pricing or what have you, where is pricing best suited in an org? You know, it's funny, when I got to Salesforce, um, this is what, 10 years ago, um, and I was running initially marketing strategy and operations in my first three months before my role expanded, I was given pricing. Um, And I was given a guy who left finance to join the marketing ops team. And in a week, we had to create a new pricing tiered structure for Benioff's offsite next week. So (laughs) um, I find it can sit in multiple places. Um, Salesforce, as it went along, actually had a very strong pricing org where we met a lot between the product team, the pricing team, myself to say, what are we doing with every next rollout? Um, At startups, I'm finding it sits if there is strategy, if there is product marketing, um, it sits somewhere in there. And sales is a very key piece of that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're lucky and you have you know, savvy salespeople that aren't just trying to get the biggest dollar, um, then I, I think it's a confluence of your sales team working with the equivalent of strategy um, to say, how can you construct something that is palatable to the customer and still has upside for the company? Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, a related point, this is this is a little bit um, out there, but I've been thinking a lot about how Salesforce kind of pioneered the per seat pricing model, right? And, and SaaS is now, I think, there's some significant portion, if not the majority of SaaS companies use per seat pricing. Um, at Comfy, we don't use per seat pricing. We use, uh, it's a, it's a you know, buildings play, and we use uh, basically a per square foot pricing, uh, which, which in some ways encourages usage because we're not discouraging people 
uh, individual you know users from using the product because it would cost them to to use. So I'm, I'm curious, like, what do you think the future of SaaS pricing is? Do you think that in in the future, do you think that per seat pricing will continue? That sort of the, the model that that Benioff and Co established will continue to be the norm, or do you think that you'll see kind of a, a increasing proliferation of different pricing models? You know, I feel like even though to your point there is a, a disincentive on a per seat basis. Um, that might create create a situation where a customer buys less than they might otherwise have. Uh, I think for most applications, the value add is there. Right? You really run into trouble with that model when um, you know there's very light touch usage, mm -hmm. and that's I presume when you get into those tiers where I know some products you can have read only access, you can have other aspects of per seat, right? Um, but as long as you can make those nuances work, right? Uh, it is related to, I think, can you prove the value of what you're offering? Mm -hmm. And so I think per seat pricing for a large number of different applications still is going to make sense. You know, if you think about Comfy, I could see you could technically go down a per seat model, but at the end of the day, um, remembering your ecosystem, your buyer uh, is really important. Okay. And if you think about, especially building management, workplace management, um, those roles, I think, are not used to the construct of per seat, right? And so it makes a lot of sense, again, depending on who your buyers are, to construct a model that, that is familiar to them mm -hmm. and, and they can relate to. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would say for, for a large majority, I can see per seat working. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, one of the, you know, just um, angles I've been thinking about a lot around this is, is actually the rise of AI. Mm -hmm. and thinking about how AI um, some instances of AI will put pressure on sort of the number of seats in a given function because if AI really does improve productivity to the amount that a lot of the promises create, it might reduce the number of seats available in a function, which could put some pressure on that on that pricing model. What do you think? Yes and no. If you think about over time, right, every next technological innovation has created that increase in productivity mm -hmm. and hence created downward pressure on whichever number of people are doing whatever, right? However, you would have to believe, as has proven out in many cases, that um, that productivity increase lets the company grow mm -hmm. better, faster, more sustainably, hence creates other opportunities for growth, hence there's still a marketplace that's big enough to yeah. meet the need. So the AI will do similar things. So seat-based pricing will continue mm -hmm. to so. live in its dominant so. fashion. All right, we'll I like that bet. We'll see in five years. We'll so. see in five years. Yeah. Um, all right, so, um, so let's- Sorry, going back to that one, yeah, sure. I was thinking, so AI, if you think about it, um, the, the way it's incorporating itself is to make your job easier, mm -hmm. right? In many cases, like if you look at a lot of the sales AI tools, yep. um, that, that's what it is. Sales guys hate, enterprise sales guys on the road, hate opening up something and having yeah. to input information. Um, so, so I think that that's how it's gonna help. Mm -hmm. um, and hence, I don't know, I, I'm more optimistic than I think uh, on the beyond that. Good. Yes. Okay, good. Um, so you moved from Salesforce on to startups. Um, you uh, were the CEO of Funding Circle. You're now the CEO of Comfy and you've been an advisor at Optimizely. So you've seen uh, three uh, sort of different stage startups. Um, so first question I have for you is, how did you know you were ready to move on from the beast uh, into a startup? and and, and and what kind of fears did you have moving from this massive organization to uh, to a startup? You know, it's funny. I think I had more apprehension moving to the thousand-person Salesforce from the 
20-something thousand Schwab or AAA. Then I did moving from um, Salesforce, which by then was 18,000 people, to a 100-person uh, funding circle mm-hmm. or even a 50-person um, company. Um, and, and some of that, I think, is um, that um, the being part of the roller coaster at Salesforce, you'd seen going from single product to multi-product, you'd seen this enormous growth in many countries and you'd been part of that and it got you much more comfortable, I think, that you could handle anything else because you'd seen so many nuances. But to your question about what made me want to do something else, um, I thought that my eight years at Salesforce were so amazing in terms of the amount I had learned um, and it, really tempted me to say, could I take all these amazing things I learned about how to make growth and scale happen and apply them somewhere smaller and help that company to see similar sort of growth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was really what was behind um, you know, my moving on from Salesforce. It was also this feeling that if I went somewhere smaller, um, as I mentioned before, for me, the passion is around how do you connect the dots and make the outcomes that much better, faster, bigger. Um, and so uh, for me, that was also part of it. Salesforce was getting to a size where a platform was a great place for me because it was small compared to the rest of Salesforce. Uh, but increasingly, again, it was a very big company, yeah. a wonderful big company. I miss it dearly in, in people in many ways. But that was really what um, drove me to think about doing yeah. something else. That makes sense. And so what has been your biggest surprise in moving from Salesforce land to startup land? Um, you know, it's interesting. Um, I, I assumed that all startups would have, um, you know, deep urgency and deep accountability um, because I mean, they're startups. <laughs> and what I found was actually at Salesforce, even at 18,000 people, there was an enormous amount of accountability and enormous amount of urgency. Um, and it's interesting because it's made me think about the fact that when you're at a startup, people work really hard, but they haven't necessarily yet, I think, necessarily thought through those elements of accountability, which get more and more important when you're trying to connect the dots across the different pieces of your go-to-market and your product organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things I find I, I've i been doing um, at both startups and even honestly when I was advising Optimizely was around, um, again, how do you, when you're doing a, a large cross-functional initiative, like at Comfy, we have a viral product, but we've never really leveraged that whole end user yep. energy. People just love us mm-hmm. and so, the reason we hadn't done much is because it sits in multiple places, right? Product has to do something. Marketing has to do something. There are many places that need customer success management needs to come together. Um, and so this whole idea of accountability around how do you structure cross-functional initiatives mm-hmm. um, and then create the structure and the accountability to drive to outcome, mm-hmm. um, I think is something that I found is is missing mm-hmm. um, in, some, in, in, I think, many startup environments. Not because people aren't excited and keen and working hard, um, but because I think they haven't thought through, they're busy optimizing their silos, they're growing fast, and, and the need for that accountability in cross-functional ways. Yeah, I think that's fascinating and super counterintuitive. I think people would assume that the large organization, A, is more siloed, and B, people are less motivated, but in your experience, the reality is the silos actually, and sort of the disconnects, uh, may be more of an issue at the earlier stage than they are at later stage, which is something that I think, um, you know, as an investor, 
I'm seeing increasingly with increasing frequency. I think people just assume because it's a small company that the different functions are talking to each other and it's coordinating. But particularly as you get to be 50 people and 75 people and 100 people, the assumptions you have when you're five people go away and you need to sort of take some professional management steps, which is a big reason why we hired you a company and we're so excited to have you. So thank you so much for, for taking the time to do this. Uh, really enjoyed, really enjoyed the chat. Thank you, Nick. Appreciate the time. Yeah, all right.